Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 69, Germany in 1200, Medieval Faith. Way back when, in episode 30, we identified three drivers of the investiture controversy. These were the conflict between the emperor and the princes, the conflict of the emperor with the popes, and the rise and rise of piety amongst the lay people. These last 38 episodes, we did talk at length about how the princes established their own territorial lordships against the imperial central power, and man, did we talk about the conflict between the popes and the emperors. But that third element, we only touched in passing. We covered the Paterna uprising in Milan and later the emergence of the scholastic method, the role of Bernard of Clairvaux and the crusading movement. But that did not mean that lay piety had gone away. Absolutely not. It was and remained the most crucial development in what Jacques Le Goff calls the birth of Europe. Now is the time to talk about it in context. But before we start, as always, a reminder. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to all of you who have already signed up, especially to Laura, Kelly and Grant. Now, as you guys may have noticed, I'm not a religious person, and I struggle to believe spiritual phenomena appear solely from the revelations of prophets and divine beings. Economic, demographic and geographic conditions shape belief systems, and in turn, what people believe influences economic and demographic conditions. And for true believers, even geography is subject to prophetic demands. Hence, let us take another look at the starting point in and around the year 1000. Economic conditions had begun to improve. The men and women of the early Middle Ages began climbing Maslow's pyramid. Basic physical needs were covered and, despite the ever-present violence, safety within the walled cities and under the cover of the local castles had improved. Strong communities formed within the villages and cities, giving people a sense of belonging and ways to gain the esteem of their neighbours. From there, the road is open to seek self-actualization, which we know in the Middle Ages does not involve yoga, social activism or podcasting, but faith. By 1000, most inhabitants of Western Europe and large parts of Eastern Europe were nominally Christians. But few knew what that actually meant. If you lived in a village or an outlying farmstead, you may hear mass maybe once a month when the itinerant priest came around and mumbled a few words in Latin. Some village priests were well-educated at one of the monastic or episcopal schools, but not all. Books, even the basic Bible, were extraordinarily expensive and hence rare. They were written in Latin, the language of the elite. And the elites dominated religious life. The abbots and bishops had access to the all-important theological knowledge, and what they said had to be taken as gospel. Emperors like Otto III and Henry II had the same level of education as their bishops, and put themselves at the head of the church. There were more priest kings who presided over papal synods. Their Romanesque churches were monumental fortresses of the faith, designed more to impress their power onto their surroundings than to invite the faithful in. By 1200, this world had changed. Not only had the emperor been thrown off his spiritual throne by the reformed papacy, but even the church itself had to fight to keep control of its flock. The spiritual life of the peasants had changed. Many villages now had their own priests, 
and they could hear Mass at least on Sundays, if not more often. The priest was expected to cater for the spiritual well-being of their parishioners, console them in grief, administer the sacraments, and explain the key tenets of the faith. Cities usually had more than one church. Rich merchants and successful artisans would donate funds for Mass to be said more regularly. The interiors are painted with images showing stories from the Bible or saints' lives. The Gothic churches that are built now open up to the streets with wide and inviting gates, calling all and sundry to enter into the high and airy naves bathed in the light of coloured glass windows. Itinerant preachers travel from place to place and draw large crowds. Students go to the newly founded universities in Paris, Bologna and Montpellier and on their return share what they have learned. Merchants and artisans move from town to town, not just to sell their wares and services, but also to visit famous shrines and see venerated religious figures like Bernard of Clairvaux or Hildegard von Bingen. Even the otherwise uncouth knights become pilgrims. You remember these Norman fighters who had initially come to Puglia to pray at the shrine of St. Michael in Gargano and stayed picking up jobs with the quarreling powers of southern Italy. The Crusades themselves were first and foremost pilgrimages to the Holy Sepulchre and military conquests second. Book production accelerates and moved from monastic scriptoria to the cities, giving the educated classes access to the actual text of the Bible and the writings of the Church Fathers. People, books and ideas moved around from the 11th century onwards and information flows and flows. And that quickly reveals that Christianity is a complex religion. Take the Holy Trinity, one of which a father and son, but still they've always been in existence. Not very easy to get your head around. The commands of the Old and the New Testaments are even harder to reconcile. As the interpretations of the Bible are now written down and shared, differences are becoming manifest that nobody had noticed before. The more the medieval mind craves the certainty around the right way to live, the more their doubts grow. The grand bishops and mighty abbots are not much use in alleviate that doubt. Men like Reinhard von Dassel or Christian von Mainz are much more concerned with the worldly affairs of the empire than its spiritual well-being. They are learned men and personally pious, and Reinhard had brought the relics of the three kings to the Cathedral of Cologne, which is now rising up in the new Gothic style. But they are also the leaders of Barbarossa's armies that lay waste to cities and even try to apprehend the rightful pope. A grand prelate in his gold and silk vestment is a long way away from Jesus' followers, who, including St. Peter, were simple fishermen. One was a wealthy tax collector and another one a zealot, a professional revolutionary. But only the Apostle Paul had been a Pharisee, a religious educator and political operator. Now, as we move into the 13th century, people want to understand, to feel and to live their faith. The urge to understand structure and ultimately define Christianity in the Middle Ages had gone into the history books as scholasticism. Scholasticism is an attempt to derive truth by investigating all arguments, weighing them, and then arriving at a final conclusion. We've already encountered the early scholastics in episode 45 when we looked at the conflict between Abelard and Bernard of Clairvaux. Abelard and the two archbishops of Canterbury, Lanfranc and Anselm, had laid the foundation. Peter the Lombard, 1096 to 1160, produced the Four Books of Sentences, a first attempt at a comprehensive and structured summary of all theology. It is on that basis that Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas were putting together their Summa Theologia, 
again an attempt to bring all the texts of the Bible, the Church Fathers, the Papal Pronouncements and even Aristotle into one all-encompassing summary of what was right and what was wrong. Albertus Magnus 1200-1280 was Germany's great contribution to the scholastic method. He lived a long and one has to admit extraordinarily productive life. In 1899, a compilation of all his writings were published in no fewer than 38 volumes. That simply boggles the mind. Remember, this is before the widespread availability of paper, i.e. most text had to be written on parchment, which is made from leather in a costly and time-consuming process. Given how expensive writing was, people thought long and hard about whether something should be noted down for posterity. If you read the chronicles from the early Middle Ages, you can almost feel how deliberately they've chosen the events and thoughts they wanted to preserve. 38 volumes mean two things. One, that production of writing materials had increased dramatically over the previous centuries, and that whatever Albertus Magnus wrote was considered worth preserving. Albertus Magnus's guiding light was Aristotle. Like his hero, he was interested and wrote about absolutely everything. Logic, astronomy, astrology, alchemy, mineralogy, botany, zoology, geography, physiology, justice, law, economics, mathematics, ethics, love and friendship. His objective was to bring together not just all of theology, but all of the knowledge of the world. What made him more than just a great collector and systematizer of information was what he called experiments. And he famously said that, quote, for it is the task of natural science not simply to accept what we are told, but to inquire into the causes of natural things. Albertus Magnus stands in many ways godparent to modern science, and in 1941 he was made the patron saint of all those who work in the natural sciences. Today, Albertus Magnus is overshadowed by his disciple, Thomas Aquinas, the towering figure in scholastic theology. The two men met when Albertus Magnus was a magister at the University of Paris. They had a close relationship and Albertus Magnus, at significant risk to himself, came to Thomas's aid when the latter was accused of deviating from church doctrine. Though Albertus Magnus received a full professorship at the most prestigious university for theology, the University of Paris, he did leave this post to teach in Cologne. Germany did not have universities before Heidelberg was founded in 1386, and that is often seen as another sign that intellectual life in Germany had fallen behind France and England in the High Middle Ages. The example of Albertus Magnus may help to correct that picture, at least a little bit. Whilst the scholastics were busy making sense of the Bible and the world, for most people, their complex theories and their even more intellectual discussions had limited appeal. Many were looking for a more immediate, almost physical relationship to God. They wanted to feel what it's like to experience God's love. And that is where the great medieval mystics fit into the picture. Now we already encountered Bernard of Clairvaux, whose mad antics and venal power politics made him officially this podcast's least popular saint. But these mystics weren't all like that. Hildegard von Bingen, 1098 to 1179, is a great proponent of a more positive image of medieval mystic. Having been born as the tenth child of a prosperous noble family, she was placed in a nunnery at a very young age. She herself said that she was only eight years old. She joined the sister of her father's liege lord, a nun named Jutta. Both women were what is called enclosed. That meant they were put into a cell 
which was then walled up. Their only communication with the outside world was through a small window in the wall where they would receive food and water and probably handbag unspeakables. Enclosure became a common practice for nunneries in the 12th century, mainly for financial reasons. Nunneries had become a burden on their monastic orders. Since nuns were not allowed to say mass or administer sacraments, they attracted a lot less donations from patrons. On the other hand, they needed spiritual support from either monks or priests who would come to say mass for them, take their confession and provide spiritual guidance. Often that problem was solved by having monasteries and nunneries attached to each other, which solved some of the financial issues but caused other entirely predictable problems for nuns and monks whose vows of celibacy had become fragile. And so they arrived at a simple solution. Wall the women in so the monks cannot gather them. But they can still hear mass and get their sacraments. Now, allow me to refrain from judgment on this. Hildegard, it seems, did not mind being enclosed. She and Jutta were admired for their piety and their pain they took for their belief. But that alone is not what she's famous for. Hildegard experienced visions, which she describes as follows, quote, From my early childhood, before my bones, nerves and veins were fully strengthened, I've always seen this vision in my soul even to the present time when I am more than 70 years old. In this vision, my soul, as God would have it, rises up high into the vault of heaven and into the changing sky and spreads itself out amongst different peoples, although they are far away from me in distant lands and places. And because I see them this way in my soul, I observe them in accord with the shifting of clouds and other created things. I do not hear them with my outward ears, nor do I perceive them by the thoughts of my own heart or by any combination of my five senses, but in my soul alone, while my outward eyes are open. So I have never fallen prey to ecstasy in these visions, but I see them wide awake, day and night. And I am constantly fettered by sickness, and often in the grip of pain so intense that it threatens to kill me, but God has sustained me until now. The light which I see thus is not spatial, but it is far, far brighter than a cloud that carries the sun. I can measure either height, nor length, nor breadth in it, and I call it the reflection of the living light. And as the sun, the moon, the stars appear in water, so writings, sermons, virtues, and certain human actions take form for me and gleam." Unquote. Her visions that she described in detail in her book, The Liber Scrivias, for which she had illuminations made, look almost like abstract paintings of swirls and lights and shapes. I will put some on the website for this episode, History of the Germans-69-2. She also composed some beautiful music, which again, I will try to put onto the webpage. As her reputation as the Sibyl of the Rhine grew, she became abbess of her own nunnery, by now no longer enclosed. Though she had not received any proper education in Latin, a collection of her letters to popes, kings and emperors was published even during her lifetime. Many argue that these letters were written by scribes, as was her book of visions, and others have declared them fakes. But I'm pretty sure an emperor such as Barbarossa, with a keen eye on public opinion, would have very much wanted a communication with an important mystic. And if she remonstrates him for his behaviors and decisions, that was only to be expected. How much influence she had on him and whether she actually met him is unclear. And that's maybe a good thing, because if she had, she would only have been a female Bernard of Clairvaux. 
Understanding the tenets of the faith and hearing a mystic share what it feels like to believe was still not enough for many. Disappointed with the official church, they wanted truly to follow in the footsteps of the apostles. They gave away their worldly possessions and embarked on an itinerant lifestyle, preaching in the villages, towns and cities along the way, living off alms and never accepting more than food and drink. In previous centuries, individuals so inclined would have joined a strict monastic order like the Cistercians or the Promenstratensians, but that is not what these religious men wanted. They did not want to pray in seclusion set apart from their fellow men. They focused on Jesus' command to go forth and spread the word of the Lord. They would preach on street corners and piazzas. They would go to markets and bridges, wherever people gathered, to talk to them. This made them very much a city phenomena. It is in the cities where the curious, the adventurous, the intellectual and the restless gather. They are keen to incorporate some of the ways of the apostles into their lives. And supporting one of these preachers, whose holiness is evident from the modesty of his lifestyle, could be a way. Others go further and follow the preacher to the next town, and again others join him for good. Some of the itinerant preachers have been monks or had some form of religious education, but many had not. Some could read and explain the stories of the Bible to their flock in the vernacular language. Others did make things up or cobbled them together from things they had heard elsewhere. Peter Valdez was a rich and pious merchant from Lyon. Around 1170, he financed the translation of the Bible into the local Provençal language. By 1176, he had an epiphany. He sold his business and left his family to live in apostolic poverty. He used his fortune to feed the poor during the drought, which may have been the reason for his decision. After that, he wandered around the Diocese of Lyon and read his Provençal Bible to the people. That put him into conflict with the church. Preaching was the privilege of priests and monks, not something any Tom, Dick or Harry could do. Valdez realized that and applied for a license to preach for his community. Pope Alexander III did ultimately grant the license, but only as long as the local Archbishop of Lyon considered them acceptable. That system worked okay for a little while, but by 1182 a new archbishop clamped down on the Valdensians, which is what his community was now called. The bone of contention was that Valdez had allowed women a more significant role during services. The archbishop threatened the removal of the license to preach unless Valdez changed tack, but he refused, quoting Apostles 529, quote, We must obey God rather than any human authority. He and his followers were duly excommunicated and exiled from Lyon. From there, the Valdensians then spread across the main urban centers of southern France and northern Italy. They came to Bavaria, Swabia and even up along the Rhine River. The rejection by the church meant they no longer had to care about the official doctrine. They developed their own theology based on a very literal reading of the Bible. Their belief system is often seen as a forerunner of Protestant beliefs, in particular the focus on the individual study of the Bible, the importance of confession, lay preaching and the rejection of saints. From 1230 onwards, the Valdensians were persecuted by the Inquisition as heretics and retired to the Alpine valleys in France and Piedmont, where there are still, today, Valdensian communities. For the Church, these developments were very disquieting. The scholastics and the mystics could be managed. They were easy to find, and they were already part of the institutional Church. If they strayed from the orthodoxy, they could be made to recant, and when that failed, could be locked up in some monastery to keep them quiet. But these apostolic poor were outside the church institutions. 
their preaching was uncontrollable. They could not be shut up into a monastery because their followers would spring them from jail. Debating with them did not work because they would just throw Bible quotes back at you whether they fit or not. And as we have seen with the Valdensians, putting them under pressure only radicalized them. In that situation, the church went for a two-pronged approach, destruct and embrace. To get rid of the most radical of these apostolic preachers was to physically eradicate them, whilst the more moderate are to be integrated into the church. An element of the first strategy was the so-called Albigensian crusade against the Cathars. Now, the Cathars I know are super popular with the Friends of the Middle Ages, and I will not try to add much to the heavily disputed story. Maybe one thing. One of the earliest reported cases of Cathar beliefs comes from the city of Cologne in 1143. In 1163, five adherents of the Cathar beliefs were burnt at the stake in Cologne. That's well before they made a splash in southern France. The Cathars' beliefs had moved even further from the church doctrine than the Valdensians. They embraced dualist traditions that saw the world and everything in it as inherently evil. That led them to denying that Christ had become human, as that would have been an embrace of the evil world. Their spiritual leaders were called the Perfects, whose lifestyle involved a near-complete rejection of the world. No money, no sex, no meat, no fun of any kind. Men and women were considered equal and both could become Perfects. The Cathars were a threat, not just because of their radical beliefs, but mainly because they had begun to build institutions and infrastructure, in particular in southwest France. There were Cathar bishoprics and the Count of Toulouse had become their worldly protector. Pope Innocent III called a crusade against the Cathars that offered full absolution of sins for anyone who would be willing to murder peasants in the Languedoc. The struggle lasted comparatively long, a first crusade from 1205 to 1215 and then 10 years of revolts, and only by 1244 could the Cathars finally be driven underground. The campaign was exceptionally brutal. Its leader, by the way, was Simon de Montfort, the father of the other Simon de Montfort, the one that established the British Parliament's right to control taxation. In 1209, the Crusaders attacked the city of Béziers. They offered the Catholics within the town free passage, which they refused. And once the city had fallen, they killed all of its inhabitants. Asked how they should distinguish between the good Catholics and the heretics, they were told, kill them all, God will know his own. Now, the great winner of the Albigensian Crusade was the King of France, who took over the county of Toulouse and ultimately controlled all of southern France. Crusading against an institutional religion like the Cathars may be a viable strategy, but murdering all poor preachers and their followers in the cities was simply not feasible. The church needed a way to channel this undercurrent of religious fervor and found it in the form of St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis' backstory is almost identical to that of Peter Valdez. The son of a rich merchant, he at some point rejects all worldly goods to follow in the footsteps of the apostles. He lives as a beggar and preaches all across his hometown, and when there weren't enough listeners, he would preach to the birds. Like Valdez, he seeks authorization from the Pope, and Innocent III, the same who ordered the Albigensian crusade, having learned from the disaster that was the rejection of Valdez, grants him the right to form a new monastic community. The friars, as he called them, would live in the cities. They would preach to the people rather than pray in seclusion. They renounced all wealth and would move from town to town living as beggars. He quickly added a female version of his order, the poor Clares, 
and the so-called third order. The third order would admit laymen who did not take monastic vows but would emulate some elements of Franciscan life whilst remaining in the world. The Franciscans became the main way the church institutionalized the apostolic poverty movement. The other important order were the Dominicans, who were specifically founded to oppose the Cathars. The Dominicans adopted the life of the apostolic poverty, but they would also embrace scholastic thoughts to be more convincing in debates with potential heretics. Now, did it work? Well, yes and no. The Cathars are no more and the Valdensians are a small community. But the Franciscans, as soon as their ascetic founder had passed, threw half his rules overboard and built him the most spectacular church in Assisi, decorated by all the greatest artists of the time. The Dominicans became the Inquisitors, the Dominicanes, the hounds of the Lord seeking out divergent thought. But there is still a great legacy from this religious fervor, doubt. The constant uncertainty whether what one is told is really the truth, the need to prove the accuracy of any statement, the scholastic idea of the experiment, all that feeds into what Jacques Le Goff called the birth of Europe. That is it for today. Next week, we'll descend back to terra firma and talk a bit about the controversial word, the feudal system. I hope to see you then. Now, before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show. In particular, the patrons have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash history of the Germans. It is thanks to you that this show does not have to start with me endorsing mattresses or meal kits. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the history of the Germans, it's likely to be seen by others, hence bringing in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter at Germans History and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>